You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Well, we come now to our Bible reading, and Genesis uh, breaks into two halves. They're not equal halves, but in chapters 1 to 11, you have really the universal history, and then from chapter 11, 27 onwards, we follow the, the story of Abram and his descendants. And so we, uh, we did the first 11 chapters some time ago, and now we are turning to chapter uh, 11, 27 uh, onwards. So here, these words... Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iskar. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Well, may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word to us this morning. Well, God makes this big promise to Abram. And I think for most of Abram's life, he was wondering how on earth and when is this promise 
going to come about. And we are inheritors of that promise. And I think we, we feel that tension, don't we, of wondering how are God's promises going to work out in the world and in our lives. And there is rich encouragement for us as we come to these texts. We come to the family of Abram. And we're going to start uh, with the, the family of Abram, that little paragraph in 1127 to, th uh, to 32. Um, the, the chapter division is a little bit weird, the fact that chapter 12 starts where it does, because really the unit starts with 1127. So we look at the family of Abram, um, which serves to connect with what's gone before. Then we look at the call of Abram, God's promise to Abram, his response of faith and obedience, and then his travels amongst the, the Canaanites in the land. And then we get the promise again, the promise really focused on the offspring and the land, and then his worship in the land. So this section that we're looking at this morning that we've read, it's part of a larger unit which runs to the end of chapter 13, and, and really a unit which is based around a there and back again structure. It's sort of, we have the journey, you can sort of follow it on, the, on your map, it's marked there with the arrows. Abram comes down into the land, and then he goes down to Egypt at the end of chapter 12, um, or do, that second part of chapter 12 in Egypt, and then he returns from there. So at the beginning of 13, he's back in the land, and he retraces his route back into the to the land. So there's a sort of a there and back again structure in this larger unit from 12 to 13. And then chapter 14 is the beginning of a new unit. But the little paragraph that we start with starts with the words, these are the generations of Terah. And that little introductory formula, these are the generations of, comes uh, 10 times in the book of Genesis five times in chapters 1 to 11, five times in chapters 11, 27 to the, to the end of the book. And in each section, that introduces a new section. So this section, it just serves to connect uh, the Abrahamic narratives and all that happens there with all that has gone on before it. And you can, if you've got your Bibles there, you can track back uh, this. These are generations of terror. That comes at the end of a a genealogy, and you can look back there and work back to these are the generations of Shem, so Noah's son, and then these are the generations of Noah, and you can that formula that comes back throughout the Genesis. It just connects us back to this universal history. And Terah fathers three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, a father with three sons who are named, and we think Noah with three sons, or Ab Adam with three named sons. So this is all linked back. And Haran fathered Lot, um, uh, and Lot is, he comes up quite a lot, you'll have noticed, in this passage, and he's, he's an important character in these early uh, parts of this, this Abrahamic narrative, because uh, the, the question is, how are the promises, how, how is the promised blessing going to come about? And it, the question is, well, is that going to be through Lot? Lot, Lot is sort of an, is Abram's nephew, is like an adopted son. And so initially we're thinking, well, maybe the promises are going to come about through Lot, which is why Lot gets mentioned so often in uh, these early, uh, these, these chapters. 
Aaron fathers Lot. Haran dies in the presence of his father in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. So Ur of the Chaldeans was a, was a great civilization. You can see it marked on the map there. It's in southern Mesopotamia, that land between the rivers, the, the river the Tigris to the north and the Euphrates to the south. And it's uh, near modern-day um, well, uh, Baghdad. It's in Iraq. And uh, lay buried in the sands for, for many years. And was, there were some, some digs. So one of, the, one of the books I've got on my shelves, I don't claim to have read it, is this wonderful book, Ur of the Chaldees, uh, by Sir Leonard Woolley, uh, which on its flycover has the words, archaeology has few popular classics. Few popular classics. This is one of them. Um, and it's got some wonderful pictures of uh, Sir Leonard um, measuring the drains of uh, Ur of the Chaldeans in, it's about 1929, uh, with Mrs. Woolley. And uh, one of them was enjoying themselves. She was dragged along for the ride. But it's all been dug up. And you can see, actually, the British Museum's got quite a lot of this stuff from Ur of the Chaldeans. You can see these artifacts there. So this great civilization that's been dug up and explored with its uh, great ziggurat um, there, which that was where Abram and his family uh, were from. And so we read at the end of Joshua 24, uh, long ago, Joshua says this, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So they lived in this great city-state, this great civilization, Ur of the Chaldeans, far away from the promised land, and they served other gods. Now, they would have retained some knowledge of the true and living God, which would have been passed down from generation to generation, but that, that knowledge was in danger of being corrupted and lost as they served other gods. Verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives, Sarai and Milcah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Sarai's lack of a child comes to dominate the narrative. We're left wondering, uh, how are the promised blessing? How is that going to come about? Terah took Abram and Lot and Sarah, so Terah, Abram's father, took them and they went from Ur to Canaan, stopping at Haran, uh, where Terah died. And it seems there that Terah himself is making the decision and Abram is just tagging along. Uh, but we know from the rest of the Bible, even these chapters, it was Abram who was himself who was called. And Stephen in Acts 7.23 says this, says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. God called Abram. I think what's happening is Terah here is being honoured here as the head of the household, and it's a sort of an honorifically given to him that he was uh, bringing the family there. So this little paragraph, it, it sort of it connects us to what's gone before. It introduces us to a wider cast of characters as we read through Abrahamic narratives, we, we're, we commonly think of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and the main characters, but there's a whole lot of side characters who come up, and there are all kinds of family connections which we can trace back, and uncles and aunts, and think of how Laban is connected, and all these other characters. So this is important as we come to the text to have this, this background. It also reminds us of just the... the the, the background where we've come from in terms of the, uh, the reign of, of death and that we're in a fallen world. We have uh, Haran, his brother, 
who has died, and um, Haran there. It's a little bit... So Haran is Abram's brother, and it's also the place name where they stop, uh, possibly named after Haran. So Haran has died. Abram's father has died. Sarai is barren. We're reminded that Abram's life, as he sets out, is, is deeply marked by the fall. He lives in the shadow of the valley of death. And, and also all that has gone before really forms an essential background to the call of Abram. So in the midst of a, of a world of death, God promises life. He promises blessing. And so we come to the call and promise of Abram in, in verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abram is to leave country, kindred and family, leave everything he's known. And the Lord's first words to him here bring a great challenge, don't they? Just as his last, the Lord's last words to Abram in, in Genesis 22 um, bring a great challenge. He says there, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will show you. So Abraham has this challenge right at the beginning and then at the end of uh, the, the final words of the Lord, there's this great challenge. He was to leave his home, leave his nest, and go to the land that I will show you. Go where? Well, God did not tell him the plan up front. He didn't share the itinerary with him, show him the map. Abram had to trust the Lord. And this is the call of faith. We are called to trust the Lord. So we have the, the call of Abram, and then we have the promise to Abram. And there is this sevenfold promise which is annexed to uh, that call, a set promise of sevenfold blessing. Verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. After Babel, the world was divided into languages and nations. And in chapter 10, we have that table of nations, 70 nations symbolizing all the nations of the world. And um, Abram has been uh, brought out and God promised to make of him a great nation. Second, I will bless you. This echoes the start of uh, Genesis. Oh, I bless you. It tend, we tend commonly hear that when someone sneezes, don't you? Bless you. But as we're reading the Bible, we need to read these words and hear the echoes of Genesis chapter 1. God created uh, man, male and female, he made them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the world. Blessing involves the idea of multiplication and increase. So he promises to bless Abram. This is God's promise really to fulfill his original plan for creation. It is a promise to reverse the fall, reverse the curse. Third, I will bless you and make your name great. Men at Babel had sought to make a great name for themselves. Here God promises, he is the one who will make a great name for Abram. Fourth, so that you will be a blessing. The blessing was not for him alone. 
but was to overflow. Fifth and sixth, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you, I will curse. Here is a promise of God's protection. The Lord doesn't formally enter into a covenant with Abram at this point. That comes in Genesis 15 and then in 17. But here is a promise of protection and blessing. And seventh, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through Abram and his family, blessing would come to all the families of the earth. At that time, divided, dispersed, and scattered. So here is a promise of sevenfold blessing. God promising to restore his original good purposes for his creation. And these verses, verses 1 to 3, are of great importance for our reading of the Bible. They are picked up again and again and again and expanded and developed through the Bible. That's why that, if, if in your children's Bible, can guarantee that the promise to Abraham is in there. Well, that was the, the promise, the call and the promise. Well, what is his response? Verse 4 and 5. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. He responded in, in faith and obedience, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And he took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they'd gathered, and the people that they'd acquired, acquired in Haran. So he went, and he trusted the Lord, and acted in this costly obedience. And he went with a great company. We know from chapter 14 that Abram has got uh, 318 trained fighting men in his retinue. So sometimes when we think of Abram and Sarah and these stories, we have a, a slightly cartoonish idea in our heads of Abram and, and Sarah sort of on a, a camping trip, wandering around the promised land, waiting for a kid, um, sort of on their own. But actually, as you look more closely at the text, you see that, that Abram had this great... Um, retinue, a great entourage. He's got a, a great shakedom, really. He's got people that he's acquired. There are, um, there are servants of all kinds, uh, slaves of all kinds, um, and people in this great household. So to, to build a picture of this, it's better to sort of think of, I don't know, sort of T.E. Law e. Lawrence and the, the desert and these vast tents and this great company, really, going through the desert with flocks and herds and camels looking for water looking for places. So uh, when he packed up to leave, there was quite a, there was quite a, a journey ahead of him. Um, and so he goes and they set out and they go to the land of Canaan. And they come to the land of Canaan. And the, the ESV is a bit funny on this, actually, the, this version of the Bible. Um, it's actually just re repeated in the original text. It says, when they set out to go to the land of Canaan, uh, and they came to the land of Canaan. And I think they've, they've put that bit on the beginning of the next verse because they thought, oh, it's a bit repetitive, and they, they tried to sort of smooth it out. Um, but actually, it just repeats, and they came to the land of Canaan. And this is very significant for the writer, and the Canaanites get mentioned again later. So God makes this great promise of blessing, and then when he comes to the land... The land is not empty. The Canaanites are in the land. And if you think back to where we've been in Genesis, Canaan was the 
son of Ham, the son of Noah, and was, the Canaan was under God's curse because Ham had so dishonoured his father back there in the, in the previous narrative. So the Canaanites were, um, that, that culture as it, as it developed would become a, a, a wicked culture. Uh, they worshipped other gods and, and they, that involved um, child sacrifice. And so he come, Abram comes to the land and there are these terrible practices going on uh, in the land. And the land is not empty, it is filled with, uh, with enemies. And so he goes there into the land and God promises blessing to Abram. But do you notice that as he goes on and as the account goes on, more and more obstacles to the fulfillment of that just stack up against him. He's old, 75, and his wife's barren. And he comes to the land and is filled with, em with enemies. The starting conditions are not very positive, are they? It's said if you're writing fiction, apparently what you're supposed to do is take your protagonist and plunge your protagonist into all kinds of difficulty and trouble right at the beginning. And in a sense, that's what Abram has. He's got this great call of blessing, and then every obstacle is piled against him. And we're left wondering, how on earth is this all going to come about? And that is all so that Abraham would come to trust in the Lord who raises the dead. That is what he has to come to trust. And by the end of Genesis 22, he comes to trust in the creator God who can raise the dead. And so that's why we have these starting conditions which are so unpromising. Abram has to trust the Lord in the midst of circumstances which are not promising at all. And so yeah, Abram comes to the land and we come to his travels in the land, verses 6 to 9. He passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moray. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Again, mentions the Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. He's more specific here in, in the promise. Literally, to your seed, I will give this land. So there's two promises tied up here, the promise of offspring and the promise of land. The promise of offspring picks up on that ancient promise of Genesis 3.15, uh, that the promise that the offspring of a woman would crush the head of the serpent, would deal with evil, and this, the this uh, becomes, the, the book of Genesis really is the book about this promised offspring, this promised seed. And that is what then controls the narrative. Who is going to be the promised offspring of Abram? Is it going to be Lot? Is it going to be someone from his household? Is it, is it going to be Ishmael? And then finally we see it is Isaac. So this promise of the seed is there. And then also we have the promise of the land. And the imagery here is meant, I think, to hint and remind us of Eden. Uh, Abram comes and the Lord appears to him by his great tree in, uh, in the land. And Abram comes there. And the, as, as the story of Genesis develops and as the story of the Bible develops, 
the land of Canaan that God has chosen, this promised land, is to be a, an Eden-like land. That temple sanctuary in it ultimately is to be like the Garden of Eden where we can, people can have a fellowship with God, where the Lord appears to his people as he did at Eden. There's just this hint here. God appears to Abram in the midst of the land. So we have the promise of the seed and the promise of the land. And Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He lived in tents, but he built an altar out of stone, a place of sacrifice. There was this permanent structure in the land. Verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And the place names here are significant. Bethel, named by Abram's grandson Jacob. Um, but this is significant because Abram's journey here, uh, he, he follows a path which will be later taken by his descendants. When you have the conquest of the land under Joshua, they come from the Negev, from the south, and they come to Bethel and Ai. They, they retrace that route. So here is Abram. He is forging a path and almost sort of planting the flag in the land that uh, later on, when we have the conquest of the land, that uh, his descendants will then return to the land. So the place names there are significant. Again, he builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord and journeys on going to the Negev. And he moves on. He's probably forced to move on. Remember, the Canaanites are in the land. He's probably forced to move on to find the water and pasture for the flocks or because of enemies. So he has no permanent dwelling place. He comes with, he has these great promises, but these great difficulties. Well, that's the text. And there's just a lot for us to meditate on and ponder on as we reflect on this and as we think about this part of, of Genesis as we are back here. And one of the things which um, is very striking as we come to Genesis and reflect on it is just how the Lord works out his purposes over many, many generations. We see that, don't we? As it works backwards in the Bible, it works right back, and as it works forwards. God works out his covenantal purposes over time. He makes these great and precious promises, but a lot of the time Abram is just waiting, hoping, wondering, trusting, and thinking how are these promises going to unfold. And that's a, a lot of the, the way in which we, we spend our lives. We, of course, see much more. We are 4,000, over 4,000 years later, we can look back at how the Lord has kept his promises. Uh, we have that record of God making promises and keeping them. And yet, we wait and we watch and we hope and we, have, we think of how the Lord keeps his promises. And it takes generations. Think of just the, book of, the rest of the book of Genesis up to chapter 50. It's the story of Abram uh, and his son and his grandson and his great-grandson. And God's promises uh, do not arrive quickly. <laughs> uh, 
they, they're not fulfilled quickly. They take time. And yet we see that God does work out his original plan for the creation. He doesn't abandon it. As you look at those early chapters of Genesis, the world is, seems to be just lost and sunk in sin and rebellion and wickedness. You have the judgment of the flood, and then you have the great rebellion of, of Babel, and then you have God acting in, in judgment and mercy then. And you, you look at it, and there's such darkness and such wickedness. You think, well, surely it's all over. And yet you see God continuing to fulfill his original purposes in creation. It's important to see what we see in God's bliss. blessing to Abram is a fulfillment of his original purposes that he made known uh, in the beginning. The Lord has not abandoned his original plan of um, his original plans for his creation. So God makes great promises to bless the world and and as we look forward in the Bible, that is what we see God keeping and fulfilling his promises. And so at length, God sends the promised offspring, the promised seed. At length, well, there is Isaac. But then we have to wait uh, even longer, 2,000 years before the promised Messiah finally comes, the one who is the descendant of Abram, a descendant of um, David, the one who, who comes according to the, the God's promise to fulfill all of God's purposes. And so the Bible has this promise and fulfillment structure. And as we come in the evenings, tonight we're in Galatians, but then we're going to be back in, um, in the book of Luke. And Luke particularly, at the beginning of his gospel, looks at all the things which have been fulfilled among us. And so it looks back, the book of Luke, to see the fulfillment of all the promises. In the New Testament, we, as we read it, we see the fulfillment of God's promises as God sends uh, Jesus Christ, the one who would die on the cross to bear the power of uh, the curse of God and bear the punishment for sin and to rise again from the dead. So that in Christ, as Paul writes in Galatians 3.14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, might come to the nations. That was what was promised, and the fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. So that we, the nations, the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We receive God himself, the Spirit of God dwelling with us through faith. And as, as Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3.29, uh, if you are Christ, if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs or inheritors according to promise. So it is in Jesus Christ that God has fulfilled his promise to bless the nations and that promise is now ours. We are heirs. We inherit that promise. And God promises us a world restored, a world renewed, the curse removed. He promises us, as we said in the creed, that I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That is the promise of the life of the world to come. And there's a, a practice that I commend to you, uh, you parents with children, 
Uh, if you're ever on holiday and you, you gaze upon a particularly beautiful vista or view or landscape, uh, you might uh, put your arm around them and say, son or daughter, have a look at this. One day, all this will be yours. Um, and we, the, the work God has promised, he promised Abraham the land, but that promise gets expanded out. He promises us as the children of Abraham, the heirs, he promises us the world, a restored world. There's the promise of offspring and the promise of a land, an Edenic-like land. That is the, the storyline of the Bible. And so he's given us this great promise and now we live in the days of the fulfillment of that promise when the message of Jesus goes out into all the nations. We live during the age of, of the reversal of uh, Babel when the gospel is going out and the good news of Christ is being translated into to every language and the Bible is going out into every nation, tribe and tongue. And so that has, a, as we look at these, the scriptures, it has a great stabilizing influence on us. It gives us great endurance and strength as we look at what's happening in the world, as we look at the news cycle, at the kind of craziness that is going on, as we shift from one news cycle, a kind of pandemic news cycle, to a global war news cycle, and whatever the next news cycle is. And we are living in tumultuous times, and so it's helpful to stabilize ourselves with the enduring and unfolding purposes and promises of God. Yes, we pray into these various crises that happens and we seek to respond with wisdom uh, and grace and yet we have hope there and trust and we pray on for what God will be doing in these lands and across, uh, across Europe and across, uh, across this great nation of Russia. We pray for God's purposes to be fulfilled uh, in these great nations which for hundreds of years have had such difficulties. We pray that his church might be established and even through these times of great difficulty for people we need to continue to, to pray uh, for the immediate needs but then on to the, to the other trouble spots of the world that are no longer in the, in the news cycle. Just praying that God would be uh, fulfilling his ancient purposes. So we, we look at that, the promises being fulfilled at this sort of world level and we are moved to trust God that he is keeping his promises. But also we're just moved, I think, to trust God for uh, at the personal level uh, in our own lives that he is working out his promises for us. Think of Abram facing great difficulty, wandering through the land, facing hostility, trouble, on every side, not knowing what was ahead of him, and yet called to trust God. We are called to trust God to keep his promises. And so uh, we look to him, and we look to, to Abram, to Abraham, and uh, the Lord, may he strengthen your faith as you trust in him. Let us pray.
You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres.co.uk for more. Thank you.